Score Innovation Podcast. Uh, welcome to the Score Innovation Podcast channel for a new property and casualty episode. My name is Derek Hausek. I'm the Senior Vice President, Natural Catastrophe Manager of the Americas. With me, I'm fortunate enough to have Danny Hitchliff, who is the Group COO, CTO of Provoke Insurance Holdings, LTD, and Rob Larson, who is Senior Vice President, Head of Innovations and Projects at Score. As one of the world's largest reinsurance, SCORE provides insurance companies with diverse and innovative solutions focused on the art and science of risk. Let's dive into today's topic. So welcome, gentlemen. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Uh, we're happy gonna, to be here. We, between, the, between the three of us, we have about 75 years of, of experience uh, in the insurance industry. So uh, this should be uh, kind, of, kind of interesting. So first, Danny, in 2004, you created an underwriting desktop that was, in my mind, years ahead of its time. Um, it was completely web-based, which allowed the underwriters to, you know, work completely virtually uh, in your company. My question, I guess, to you is, now with the creation of InsureText and new IT-based platforms, do you think the world is just catching up, or are there certain advancements of technology that interest you and are groundbreaking? Um, hi, yeah, thanks, Derek. Um, that's an interesting question. I think, was I prepared for COVID? I would say that uh, I didn't have that insight. Um, that was driven mainly from our need to employ talent across the country. Therefore, to have a central data system made a lot of sense whereby we could control um, a lot of the, the data that was going out. So that was really the main drive. Um, with regards to certain advancements, I think it depends on the sector you're looking at. Uh, if you look at the personal lines area over since since 2004, um, a lot of it is, has been revolving around the mobile technology, the, the, the ability for the personal lines data to get uh, delivered directly from source. So they've sort of advanced the ball a lot more. Um, as far as the commercial and the ENS world that I'm in, it's still a little grubby. Um, it's still relying on brokers and retailing brokers to to pass information. Um, so the sort of the collection of data, I would say, has improved somewhat in the fact that you've got a lot of companies trying to put online platforms to collect the data. That's not really the part that interests me. Um, I think the bit that certainly the bit that interests me, uh, and having gone to insuretech conferences is really about the the third party data that you can access because we're all trying to avoid uh, losses really um and so is, if there's information that can tell you more about the risk um whether it be the roof types in property or the crime statistics in casualty or um you know d distance to coast all that sort of information that allows you to assess risk um quicker and in more detail to avoid losses i think is real advancement it's not there yet because the core um, providers, these sort of insure tech companies are basically getting the data from the same places at the moment. Um, I think in the next five to 10 years, that will change where people will be going to source for the data and providing it. So that's really the area that I'm most interested in is the third party loss control, loss mitigation data that we can get um, to be able to perform better underwriting. I hope that answers your question. Oh, oh, very much so. And actually, it's, it's, a, it's a good intro into bringing many different systems together. Uh, Rob, you know, since you're in charge of innovation of projects, to try to bring together so many systems, you know, globally must be a challenge. Um, what hurdles 
are you seeing in cultural adoption, you know, of, you know, bringing in new data-driven initiatives? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a kind of a good offshoot of what Danny had just said. Yeah, great question, Derek. And I think um, what, what we find is that it's not so much a systems issue, but there's a culture that needs to change. So when you talk about data-driven systems, you want to think about the IT aspect of it. But we find that um, you know one of the things we run up against is resource constraints. You know, employees they just feel an additional burden that they have to gather and use data in a new way. You know, while they're trying to do their business as usual functions, like they can't stop doing their job now to try and build their job for the future. Also, many of the employees that we have, they don't, they haven't grown up with the skill sets they need in a data-driven way. Uh, now they're being asked to think like a data scientist. They're asked to be um, manipulate and move data, query data. Uh, this is also, you know, it's a it's a big step. This is more difficult than it sounds. We watch TV ads and we talk about pushing AI solutions and you think you're just going to sprinkle some artificial intelligence fairy dust on the organization and, you know, you only need to work two hours a week and um, machines will do my job. But in reality, there's a long build time to translate some of these old processes into, into data-driven processes biggest thing about cultural transformation is transforming people who don't want to be transformed. Um, there may be global senior executives that want to push something, but a local line manager that continues to focus on business as usual. So I think it's it's real key to focus on this is not just a systems issue, this is a culture issue. You know, implementing systems and obviously budgets is also very important. Um, so I guess I have a question for Danny. Uh, we, we, we ran across this many times in, in our past, the same thing with, with kind of what Rob said is, a lot of companies spend millions of dollars um, and end up scrapping systems. And, and I, I guess, why is that? And, you know, Do you think it's a lack of insurance, business knowledge, people not understanding the data needs? Are people not connected? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that comes into two categories, really. One is if you buy off the shelf systems from these so from vendors or whether you build it in-house. If you're buying off the shelf, um, many times I've seen big companies spend multi-millions of dollars on a promise from a technology firm that have a off-the-shelf product that they say fits all and ends up fitting nobody. And you end up spending the millions of dollars just to buy it off the shelf and then you spend millions of dollars customizing it and then you realize that you're three years into a project and that the scope of the project and the, the the goals that you were trying to achieve with that have changed and then now you have a bill for millions of dollars and you've spent on a system that doesn't actually fit because the business does move relatively quickly i don't well, insurance is a slow moving uh, business however um the needs of the business change quite rapidly. You have to have a very clear picture on what you want to achieve and how you're going to implement it. If you don't do that, then you're being sold a system that promises the world and delivers nothing. Um, so that's really the vendor side. On the in-house side, that is really more about, uh, and something that Rob was talking to about messaging, but also resource constraints and, and adoption. Um, accountability is a big thing that I found in the past that you have the sort of the silos of IT and business and business will throw the specifications over the fence to tech and then tech will go off for 18 months, come back and go, ta-da, and it won't be what was required because the, the, the constant communication isn't there. And primarily that's because the business don't own it. And, the, and technology is a tool. It's always been a tool. 
And as soon as you believe that it's its own entity, you start to lose the ability to integrate it into the business in a more meaningful manner. So if the business don't aren't held accountable, the business users, sponsors, the, the, the projects that I've developed in the past that have been most successful is where the accountability and the investment from both the business and tech have been as one. Um, and that is, that I still believe that that's critical, whether it's a very small project or whether it's a very big project. Um, also, the agile approach to, to design is much uh, better now than it has been. Historically, the waterfall approach where you spend six months writing the specifications and you give it to tech and after two years they come back delivering that. Um, that's again very sectional, it doesn't really help. The agile approach more now of, you know, let's spend a week and talk about it and then we'll come back after a week and we'll refine and refine and de deliver as we go is a much better way of managing that sort of risk of de delivering something that's really um, out of scope now. Um, so so that's, that's you know, really what, it, what I think it comes down to. Oh, excellent. I mean, it, it does make complete sense. Right, Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah, I would just echo, uh, you know, what uh, Danny said about the, you know, the waterfall approach and the lobbing things back and forth and that, you know, definitely there's a need for um, both business and IT to understand each other's perspective more. I, I've talked to, you know, business managers who are who are very surprised that they would need to be so actively involved in detailed conversations about building the system, that it's not just a task that's going to be built by someone else. Hey, I'm going to say, here's my statement of premise and go build what I need. And from an IT standpoint, you know, there's a traditional focus on sort of that project management focus, and you can tend to dominate the project process to sort of say, hey, we need this specification, we need this backlog filled, um, we need to go this, get this development team going, we need this production rights, um, and tend to kind of run roughshod over, over the project. And, you know, like Danny said, suddenly come back 18 months, here's what we delivered. And having IT begin to develop a little bit more flexible mindset towards co-owning a project with the business and also teaching the business how to how to run a project from that standpoint, which is not usually in the skill set. Um, additionally, I think there's there's a there's a real need to coordinate management's expectations within this in terms of a proper governance for a system build that uh, there needs to be an understanding that it's going to take much longer than anticipated. Yeah, I, I think you both hit on, on good points as well. I, I, I mean, from my personal standpoint, I think if you expect the, um, you know, the programmers, the develop, developers to understand everything about the business, um, it, it's never going to work. You, you really have to have somebody who understands the business, be it insurance, be it whatever industry you're in, to um, be there along the way, step by step. And if you just hand it off and go away, it, it's never going to work. Okay, here's a here's a hot topic, uh, Danny. I, I know how how you work, and I know how we work at Score. Um, some companies outsource programming and data control, while others keep it in house. Um, there's obviously pluses and minuses. Uh, Score, we do we do both. So, um, Danny, what are your thoughts? I mean, what, what do you prefer, and why do you do what you do? Um, so it's a good, it's an interesting question. Um, I think some of it. Um, comes down to the quality of staff you have in-house and obviously and the scale of the project. There are certain projects that you simply can't achieve in-house because it's so massive that you need extra bodies and then it's a case of do you outsource the entire project or do you um, have a hybrid where you have some um, 
outsourced and some in-house. Uh, historically, what I prefer to do, depending on the size of project, if it's a large project, um, then I would like to, I like to mix it. So I would like to go and have a, a consultant firm, for example, if I'm building an underwriting system and I don't believe we have all the capability in-house, I would have the consultant provide the, the lion's share of the resource, however, integrate some of my internal resource for two reasons. One is obviously cost um, control to ensure that we're not just paying out the door, that, um, but also to, to ensure that we have the knowledge when we do take the, the, the technology back in-house, that we have the integrated knowledge of how it was built and why it was built. And, and so you can maintain internally, you don't have to continue to pay um, support to that external company. I, I prefer in-house development. And I, the reason for that is really because you can um, you can control the scope creep easier. Um, there's less management overhead um, because managing the scope and the creep with an external um, resource, you'll know you're getting charged by the hour. Um, and so that, you know, obviously that can get quite expensive. It really does come down to the size of the project and also the size of the budget that you're given. And then also time constraints with regards to, you know, sometimes an in-house um, delivery can be quicker um, because you're not going through the sort of formal red tape of a consultant. Um, but it really does come down to the size of the project. So there are pluses and minuses for both, I would say. Yeah, and I, I think that the, obviously this, the size of the company as well and, and how many uh, systems you're trying to combine and the difficulty um, is, is also very important. Yeah, I think from that, um, you know, I can, we can ask Rob a question, um, you know, it, the sheer amount of data, I, and I know, I know, Danny, you've seen more and more data coming in. I think you also had said something to me one time about how, you know, we always used to collect the data, but we never, um, you know, now people want it in, in different, different, different ways. So that, that's interesting as, as well. Um, Rob, are, are you finding sheer amounts of data a huge obstacle uh, currently in your, in your job? Yeah, good question, Derek. I mean, think, thanks, and I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this too, because I know you work with a vast amount of data as well. But I would say that, yeah, that 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 sure, it's it's overwhelming. That sheer amount of data that you can you can create creates this sort of mental vapor lock, and we can get overwhelmed, you know, when we can't see all the information. It's not not only just the length, you know, that we're now talking millions and billions of records, but also the width of the data in terms of, you know, how many more variables are you trying to bring in to describe something um, and so many different purposes from that. So, you know, there's a real problem of how that data all fits together. You know, are you focused on the accuracy of every single piece of information that's in there or trying to find something that's informative in the in the aggregates? Um, what we find is is sort of an unappreciated skill is is uh, is data cataloging, um, just sort of knowing in a central way what exactly are all the data sets that are in your organization, where they're located, how to use them, how to connect them with each other, who owns them, who do you talk to to determine if you're using the data in the right way, detailed discussions of what's in them. So Derek, I'm curious what other what other uh, thoughts you have on the volume of data. You know, it, you know, it's it's interesting because in the in the NatCat world, we we have terabyte and terabytes of data, and so we've actually found that you know, when we're trying to do uh, analytics on it, sometimes the the overall processing takes too long, and so we have to streamline it. There are certain regions I've noticed have better data quality than others. So when we are collecting data, 
um, it can't even fully be useful um, in some ways because we can't compare region to region based upon the quality. Are you finding data quality different in different regions? Um, yeah, I think there are, there are some differences, and it's it's maybe a little counterintuitive from my perspective, and I'll, I'll be interested from your perspective because it may or may not be different. But typically, you'd think that more developed economic regions would tend to have tradition better traditional data quality, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. You know, mature mature insurance markets they have the advantage of creating this volume of data, but sometimes the quality of that information is suspect. You know, it may be edited in some way. There could be a wealth of underlying data but what we find you know as as a reinsurer for instance um oftentimes the information is filtered before we get it we don't we're not getting pure unadulterated data we're getting an interpretation of data oh you don't need to look at this because we're not writing that piece of business anymore or oh we've already adjusted for the effect of this phenomenon in the data that we're providing you so you're getting you know and that in and of itself is a bias and you can then talk about the the quality of data in faster growth markets or new markets, I think there's there's a little bit more of an awareness that every problem is a data problem. So data can be gathered more reliably and efficiently. So yeah, Derek, I'm curious what if you agree with that or if you have a different perspective on the quality of data. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the U.S. we tend to have for for property pretty consistent data for cap modeling, and Canada is is quite uh, decent as well. Latin America, Caribbean, not as much. So. It, it does tend to see the, the more mature markets have the um, better quality of data now, but there's also a problem where, um, like you said, uh, they, we do drop data. If we don't think we were going to use it because we got it in a standardized way, we, we, we don't, um, we actually strip it out. So, you know, there, there can be a problem where you have data loss um, just because of the storage. So Rob and Danny, uh, the, the final questions. Are you, are you seeing insurance companies adopting new technology faster than the, in the past? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I think they are, uh, the insurance industry as a whole is trying to adopt newer technologies faster. Again, I think it comes down to what sector you're talking about. And it also, a lot of them are going into technologies they don't really know why, apart from, you know, that sounds good or... Um, we need to be in it because everybody else is. There's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer pressure that goes on with technology. Oh, they're online, so we should get online, or that sort of uh, performance goes on. But you know, and and to talk to your data point, you know, there is a certain amount of paralysis by analysis now that's going on, where you're noticing that everyone's got all this big data, and everybody's like, this is great, we should be using this, but they have absolutely no idea what they, why they're looking at it and what they're trying to get out of it. So certainly from an MGA world for us. We're not the oil tanker trying to move around. We're the speedboat that's running alongside that's dipping and weaving between the ways. So our adoption of newer technologies, but also how we look at the data is a lot quicker. Um, and and the, you know, the, the data decisions and the data that we're using needs to be less theoretical and more actual in the sense of if we can get data that's meaningful, great. Let's not worry about the data that we can't get that isn't as meaningful. And so we've adopted things like, you know, Microsoft Power BI, for example, is a classic example whereby you can get at the data and slice and dice it quickly. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I agree with Danny and, you know, uh, about just sort of the pace of 
offerings. I mean, I have, you know, the number of emails that I have in my inbox because I have innovation in my job title that come from vendors is just staggering the amount of people to say, hey, you want to meet? We've got a solution. We're going to we're going to consult with you. Um, it's easy to become overwhelmed in comparing yourself to other organizations that sound newer and fresher. There's sort of a, a FOMO that's involved in terms of not wanting to be left out. But at the same time, I think we need to be level-headed in the adoption of that. And that you know, we're we're an insurance business, for instance. There's there's innovation that's happening in coverage, but we're also a classic commodity. On the other hand, some insurance battles are new and emerging exposures, as well as some you know generational expectations and customer service delivery. So we need to constantly be upgrading. But I think it's just making sure that we're being wise about which of these things to invest in, as opposed to just hey, here's the next streetcar that's going past. Thank you both, gentlemen. This has been a pleasure. Um, and there'll be more podcasts coming from out of score pretty soon. Thank you. Thank you to all of our guests for joining today. You can subscribe to the Score Innovation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other audio platforms, and be our first listener to new episodes. If you want to share your insights with us, then send us a message at scorepodcast at score.com. Stay tuned and see you at the next episode of Score Innovation Podcast.